This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish Ruth with Ruth Waits with Naomi, Take My Right of Redemption, Boaz Redeems, Ruth Bears Obed, and then we head back into the New Testament with Intro to James. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Transfiguration hymn, A Wondrous Type of Vision Fair. What is it that the few disciples, Peter, James, and John, what is it that they saw there on the Mount of Transfiguration? They were looking at Christ's glory unveiled at Moses and Elijah. What is that event all about? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, February the 5th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, The Transfiguration of Our Lord. Mark chapter 9 records it. Pastor Sean Denzer will be our guest. Dr. Michael New will join us after that. Talk about a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association claiming that pro-life laws cause mental health problems for women after the Dobbs decision. Then Dr. Joseph Rigney of New St. Andrews College will be alongside. We'll discuss female pastors, empathy, and feminism. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. What's the particular history of this observance among Lutherans? Well, we've shifted it, especially in America, here to the end of to the end of Epiphany as kind of a capstone Sunday for the whole season. So it displaces whatever the last Sunday would be. It used to be in the fall, in the late summer, but it really does fit here well. We kick off with the Magi as well as the baptism of our Lord, and then we get to hear this, which in the Gospels is situated kind of as Jesus really drives hard toward Jerusalem and the cross. So it certainly fits that way, and I think it's a Sunday that's worth looking forward to, and I hope that for all of our listeners it's become one that they're especially treasuring. Last year, we got to hear St. Peter looking back on it in his epistle. This year, we have a different take entirely, which is great. And as we consider its place in the three-year lectionary especially, the transfiguration really does point our attention forward to Easter. Many may be familiar with a picture that I bet their pastor has drawn for them, where it kind of as us on the mountain here, looking across over a valley to the other mountain of his resurrection. Certainly in terms of the feast days of the church, this is going to be the last big hurrah of joy uh, in the three-year lectionary before we get to Easter. But we hear already in this gospel reading and in this event, Jesus' own interest in that, that we would not draw attention to this, his glory, until after he has risen from the dead. And so that definitely does biblically point to the transfiguration as something that is looking forward to Easter, what happens to Jesus, but also as it has to do with us. What's the law and gospel of the transfiguration? 
Well, it's really going to be on display in today's readings, uh, kind of a law and gospel take on transfiguration. We're going to see the reality of God. He's going to be present. His divine power and majesty will be on display in Jesus. His glory is going to be revealed. We're even going to have the cloud, which is always our cue that the glory of the Lord is present, revealed, and the voice of God come from it. This is good news for those that the Lord rescues and delivers. But the presence of God always causes fear, first and foremost, in the scriptures. It causes sinners to quake with fear because the Lord is the judge. And we're going to see that as well today. It's going to be the case not only with Peter, James, and John on the mountain, but it's also going to be the case as we look at the other characters, particularly Moses and Elijah and Elisha in today's other readings. Whenever our attention is directed, though, to Jesus only, now we have something new and something safe for us at last. And that's how our gospel reading kind of ends, where all of the fearsome items of God's majesty, the cloud, the thunder, the voice of the Father, these all clear away, as well as the kind of fearsome apparitions of Moses and Elijah or presence. And instead, we're fixated on Jesus who comforts those disciples who were with him on the mountain. This is going to be the reality that we're seeing in the Son of Man's approach, his come, his advent among us is to redeem us, to save us, not to preach the condemnation that comes with Moses, but to preach the grace and the truth that are with Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this then really explained for us well in our epistle. It's going to pick up on the end of Paul's discussion of the letter and the spirit, which is in 2 Corinthians. And all of that will work together to really give us a day of the law and the gospel being revealed in this event of the transfiguration, all happening in the miraculous vision that the apostles see there. The intro for the transfiguration, according to the three-year lectionary, is Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. What we hear in this psalm draws our attention to Sinai, where the Lord first met his people to worship on the mountain, where his fearsome thunder and lightning were seen, where the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night came to rest, and where the Ten Commandments were given. We also are drawn to the tabernacle when we hear about our holy Lord, when we hear about him enthroned on the cherubim, that's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which dwells in the tabernacle first, and then in the temple of God when it is built. So all of that is in view. And what does it mean? It means the Lord is present. He is here. And we ought to give him homage. We ought to pay attention to what is going on. And the second thing we should notice, maybe not so forward in this psalm, but certainly mentioned there in that first verse, that the peoples are trembling, that the very earth itself is shaking 
out of fear. This is terrifying. It's terrifying to the peoples. That's a reference to the Gentiles. But it's also, as we'll see in today's readings, terrifying to his own people. This introduces, I think, the majesty of the Lord, but also the conundrum that we are sinners and that sinners cannot stand in the presence of the holy and righteous God. If he's going to execute justice and righteousness, that is not necessarily good news for the wicked or those who are sinners. We're going to need some help here or we're going to be the ones who will be executed. And this is all good. I mean, this is what we want to teach when we talk about the proper distinction between the law and the gospel, is that the word of the Lord in the law accuses sinners. It's not that the law is bad. It lays out what God's good design is for the world. It's his eternal will at its foundation. And yet it meets us as sinners and finds us already to be guilty of it. And when we consider the approach of Israel to the Mount of Sinai, where they were given the Ten Commandments, we see exactly that play out. And their first reaction is terror and fear. And they even want God to be quiet, as we heard just a couple weeks ago, because if he's going to talk to them like this, they'll be doomed. But the gospel is that the Lord answers this conundrum himself, that he sends Christ to be the sacrifice that atones for our sins. We see this already at work in the temple and the tabernacle, that the Lord is making a way for gracious approach to him, that he is going to meet his people and bestow pardon, that he's going to put his name on them even, and it won't be as a holy name to destroy wicked people, but it'll be as a holy name that sanctifies them and claims them as his own. And all of this then will be important as we behold Christ in all of his glory, in the very same glory that was present at Sinai and in the tabernacle and in the temple, but now here on this mountain and in the man, Jesus Christ. How does the collect read? O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirmed the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshadowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory, and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. So the figures, as we'll see when we get to the gospel, which hopefully is well known to our listeners, Moses and Elijah appear speaking with Jesus in Mark's account. That's all we hear. We don't have the topic of conversation. What is the testimony? That's not really in view here. We're not going to hear what they were talking about in year B, but we will focus on the figures and their very presence is a testimony to Jesus. Why would they be appearing and flanking this one? Well, because he's the Lord who's dealt with them already, who's been interacting with them from of old. When we hear the phrase, this is my beloved son, our collect wants us to apply that not only to Jesus, but also to ourselves, that we are in fact adopted as God's sons. Now, that's an amazing statement, but that's what the gospel is, and that's what this collect brings out well. He foreshadows our adoption by grace. 
not by deserts, not by uh, being worthy to be his children, certainly not by being his natural children, divine beings or something like this, as Jesus is, but that Christ, all who trust in him, all who listen to him, all who behold him alone and who are gathered to Jesus by his sacrifice, as we'll see when we get to our psalm, this is how we are adopted and brought into the kingdom. And as our colleague says, that we would be inheritors of all of the great heavenly riches, that we would become co-regents and kings with Jesus Christ, all by virtue of what he has done. To this, Moses and Elijah are testifying, so also the cloud and the voice of the Father is testifying. All of this is accomplished through Jesus Christ. So, as we always end our prayers in his name, so also here in the Transfiguration, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus as well. We're going to see his flesh transfigured today. The divine nature is not going to destroy that flesh. It's going to be assuming this humanity, as the Athanasian Creed says. And this is, in a way, as our hymns say, a foreshadowing of what we will expect, not that we will be divinized per se, but that we will be bearing the same glorified flesh that we see Jesus for a glimpse here having. As the disciples observe when he rises from the dead and his glory is not being hidden anymore, and we will be heirs with him. So all of that means there are, are many things that can be applied to us that are applied to Jesus. How can that be? Only by faith in him, only by grace, undeserved kindness shown to us. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He's director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We'll get into the Old Testament reading for the transfiguration of our Lord. Second Kings 2 next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Christological, Creedal, Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. 
Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Stanza two of the hymn, O Wondrous Type, O Vision Fair. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, the transfiguration of our Lord, with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, the first of two possible Old Testament readings, 2 Kings 2, 1 through 12. And it's easy to see why two options are here, because there's two figures with Jesus. So I couldn't say what your pastor has chosen or what your uh, worship team has planned, but if you choose Second Kings, you're going to be looking at Elijah. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to, from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You've asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Why Moses and why Elijah? The answer here for Elijah is he's the one who is with God. He's one of the few characters in the scriptures who clearly have not died, but rather have been taken to the Lord here with these miraculous chariots of fire and the horses of fire. Interesting, we hear all of this lead up where they're passing through cities 
and each time Elijah is preparing him and he's trying to ask Elisha to stay behind, but Elisha says, no, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. This could be a fantastic illustration, I suppose, of the way it is with the disciples. Actually, we have kind of the opposite in Peter's voice. He is going to want to stay behind, and the Lord actually doesn't want him to stay there. They need to go down the mountain. But the right thing to do is always to stick with Jesus, just as Elisha, as the disciple of Elijah, the right thing for him is to stay with his master as he does. And notice the distress that all the other prophets in every town have. And you can sense, I think, a little bit that Elisha is frustrated by this as well. It is going to be a sad parting when Elijah is no longer there. This is maybe a long way off in our minds and maybe in the minds of the disciples, but ultimately that's what it means. Either if you consider Jesus' death, which the disciples are starting to grasp, but not fully, so they are still sorrowful and sad to hear that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and going to die. But also when he ascends into heaven, which is maybe a much better parallel for this Old Testament reading, they have sorrow in their hearts that the Lord will no longer be with them in the flesh as he had been. Nevertheless, if Christ, if they have heard his word, if they have listened to him, as the voice from the Father says, they have nothing to fear. And indeed, just as Elijah cast his cloak upon Elisha, who gains this double portion and performs twice as many miracles, of course, as his teacher had, uh, becoming uh, double the prophet, you might say, that Elijah was, so the Lord promises at the end of the Gospels that he will give his word to the disciples and that they go on and continue the mission of the church, that Christ goes with them just as he continues to go with our church today. Elisha won't leave him. That's uh, what we ought to take away from this as well, that we should stick with Jesus, who is more than a prophet, as we heard a couple Sundays ago, but is in fact our Lord, our Savior, the one who is our Redeemer. And as we get to our gospel reading, we'll see the reason we need to go down the mountain and stay with him, and the reason he, in an opposite fashion from Elijah, has come down from heaven to us, is to be our Savior. So it's a good thing, actually, to depart from the mountain and the glory and to stick with him. The other Old Testament reading is Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and the Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses, some have said maybe he was taken with the Lord also, since we don't know where he was buried. But nevertheless, for certain, he stands in the presence of God in a very unique way in the scriptures, that he goes up on the mountain multiple times, that he becomes this mediator 
between the Lord and the people of Israel, and that his face shines, reflecting that presence and that glory of God, the fearsome glory of God. And you can see that in the people's reaction to Moses. They don't even want to necessarily go near and see Moses, which is what leads Moses to put the veil over his face. We'll come back to that in a moment. First of all, the reason that Moses comes down from the mountain is always to communicate what the Lord has said with Israel and the glory of God there is a testament to him, just as all of the uh, miracles were to Pharaoh. It is to Moses that Israel is to listen, and that's the very same language that we heard just two weeks ago Moses used about the prophet that will be raised up after him, a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It is to him that everyone will have to listen, and the words of the Lord will be put in his mouth in a way that even surpasses Moses. Now, Moses veils his face because of the fear of the people, so that they don't have to look at it, so that they don't have to be terrified all the time. And to us, that seems like a very compassionate and gentle thing to do. We're about to come to our epistle reading, which is going to give us a little bit of a taste of a different perspective on that. The whole sweep of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is really quite remarkable and is devoted to this topic of the distinction between the law and the gospel, as well as a somewhat of a parallel with the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, although the law and the gospel, as hopefully our listeners are familiar, is different than just the difference between before and after Jesus. Uh, but the veil is going to be used as an analogy by St. Paul to speak about an incomplete or insufficient understanding of the Old Testament scriptures or of any of the scriptures when they don't lead us to be condemned according to the law and declared to be righteous and forgiven according to the gospel, which is found only in Jesus Christ and what he has done. So he's going to use this veil in a second. And if your sermon is going to be based on the epistle, I would hope and expect that this Old Testament would be the one you'd give attention to. I'm Todd Wilkin, your link to Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. LCMS Worship invites you to attend the 2024 Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th at Concordia University, Nebraska. For more information, visit lcms.org slash worship, lcms.org slash worship. When we come back, we will talk about the psalm for Transfiguration Sunday. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. 
Are you living in central Iowa and longing for a church where the gospel is boldly confessed in all of its purity? Are you tired of hearing the latest purpose-driven how to live your best life now TED Talk? Are you desperate to hear the preaching of the cross which brings you and your children the knowledge, peace, and comfort of the gospel? Then come to Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Located in Carlisle, Iowa at the southeast corner of Des Moines, we're a short ride from everywhere in the city. Visit our website, holycrosscarlisle.org. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. You can teach lay people theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Christ the Shepherd Lutheran, Alpharetta, Georgia. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Lincoln, Nebraska. Emmanuel Lutheran, Appleton, Minnesota. Luther Memorial Chapel, Shorewood, Wisconsin. Our Savior Lutheran, Louisville, Kentucky. Redeemer Lutheran, Jackson, Wyoming. St. John Lutheran, Kewaskum, Wisconsin. St. Paul Lutheran, Lockport, Illinois. Trinity Lutheran, Miles City, Montana. And Zion Lutheran, Pampa, Texas. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to the transfiguration of our Lord according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. Sean, the psalm for the transfiguration is Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. The antiphon is verse 2, and it's an obvious choice for this day. 
God shines and he speaks. Kind of the two main parts we want to notice, that Jesus, the Son of God, is shining. He is transfigured, brilliant, white, brighter than you could bleach any clothing, the scriptures say. And that the voice of the Father is heard directing us to listen to Jesus in perfect fulfillment of that Deuteronomy 18 passage. This, in Psalm 50, is a recollection of Sinai, a recollection of all the power of the Lord's word and his visage, what the people see that is evident on the Mount of Transfiguration, just as it was in Sinai. And it is a visage that produces terror, actually, which is maybe a little strange that we have just the first six verses of the psalm. I would say that's just the nice part of Psalm 50. If you go on and read the rest of Psalm 50, which I'd encourage our listeners to do, you'll see that the majority of the psalm, especially what follows immediately after this, is a rebuke specifically to the people of Israel, a rebuke for their sacrifices. This is the psalm that says, look, am I hungry? Am I like a regular person that's starving? If I was hungry, I wouldn't even ask you because I already own all the cattle on every single hill. I'm the creator. I'm the master. What I desire is steadfast love. What I desire is that you would trust in me, faith that would also do justice and serve others. So this is a call to repentance, quite a severe one. And really, that should be bottled up simply in the presence of the Lord, that when we come before him, we don't come as those who are righteous boasting in ourselves, but we come as those who are humble, who know that we deserve nothing, that if he were to keep a record of sins, as Psalm 130 says, who could stand? Nobody could. But with him, there is forgiveness. That's why we dare to approach. This is the law and the gospel distinction that is so important to us as Lutherans and especially bright light as we see throughout the whole scriptures. So we still have the conclusion in this psalm in verse 6. God is the judge. And that's how the psalm is going to go on if you'd read the rest of it. So when we come to the gospel at last, which uh, again, we're, we're driving towards we'll see that the marvelous revelation of Jesus is great fear for the disciples as it ought to be. And verse 5 is one to zero in on in this psalm. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This is the call that the judge, the Lord, gives out. And Really, it seems as if the account might even be judgment day that he calls. Let's gather everybody together. I'm going to judge them. But it's hard to find that as a comforting verse if we were to read the rest of the psalm. The Lord is going to reject their sacrifices. So what good is it if they have made covenant with him by many, many sacrifices if actually they are found in the end to have broken that covenant? But in Jesus and in him alone... This is a beautiful gospel invitation, and I think it's difficult for us not to hear it that way. I hope that you do. This is saying, come those who belong to me. Come those who are my faithful ones. Faithful to me, how? Faithful by sacrifice. And whose sacrifice is the clear question. The answer, as we'll see, is this is my beloved son. Give him your attention. It's the perfect text, actually, to kick off Lent and even Holy Week. Let all of us, all of us Christians, now be gathered closer to God, closer to Jesus Christ by the gospel, by the very sacrifice of Jesus, as John's gospel says, which draws all men to the Father. 
And we pray that God would keep us faithful to him, that he would not have us pile up a bunch of false pieties this Lent, but that in true faith we would behold him and be drawn to him for love of his sacrifice. How does the epistle reading, which for this coming Sunday is Second Corinthians, drawn from chapters 3 and 4, fit in? Well, it fits in because it's going to speak about this law and gospel distinction, and it's going to speak especially about how we might misunderstand the Old Testament and only look at it partially, veiled, as we mentioned when we looked at Exodus 34. If that's the way you hear it, you won't find the end of the law. And Interestingly, you also won't find the end of the gospel, which is salvation in Christ Jesus. you got an option to have the short version or the long version. I'll read the long version so we don't skip any of that teaching about Moses that is pretty important if we've read Exodus 34. Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So even ignoring that central part, we hear so much about light and shining in the face of God, or I think the clearest passage, right, that he is the very image of the invisible God. Think also of what is said in Colossians. And that's certainly the case today. We hear the voice of the Father, but our attention is directed to Jesus, who is going to speak the words that we are to listen to. Paul's broad sweep here is to talk about his apostolic ministry. That's the we, as he and his fellow co-workers. And he's speaking about the character and the task of their ministry, which very much is the ministry of the New Testament that is still being undertaken today. It is a bold ministry on account of the hope we have. What's the hope we have? Well, it's revealed today in the face of Jesus Christ. We see what, in fact, our resurrected bodies will be like in him, the certainty that we have of eternal life in Jesus. It makes us bold. And what he means is it makes us bold, first and foremost, to preach the law. 
Now, that might be surprising. We're talking about the old covenant coming to pass here, the letter being a ministry of death that is surpassed by the ministry of life, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the gospel. But he says that ministers of the New Testament are bolder than Moses, who always use that veil. What does that mean? What is the thing that's being brought to the end? It is the covenant of the law. And what is the outcome of the covenant of the law? The outcome is death. So remember Exodus 20, when the people say, Moses, we'll listen to you, but we won't listen to God. If, we're, if he keeps talking to us like this, we will die. And the Lord says they were right in what they said. That's the outcome. The outcome of the law is death. Paul, of course, has said this many places, that the law does not bring life as it might seem, but because we are sinners, it brings death. It accuses us. It reveals and discloses our sins. That's why it ends up being a ministry of death and condemnation. It's not a means by which we will walk a road to salvation. And Moses was timid about that. Paul says. He covered it up. He didn't show them always that death was the intended outcome. What happens if we veil the law like that so that condemnation and the accusation of the law kind of get over overlooked or, or glossed over? Well, the law becomes something that we think we really are accomplishing. It doesn't accuse us anymore, or we shuffle the acu accusation off and we begin to think, well, you know, I really do have this all in order. I really am keeping it well. This is kind of what that rich young ruler had said to Jesus, right? All this I've done since my youth, and the Lord has to go deeper, right, and do everything that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount to open up the law and let that veil be taken away so that it condemns the whole world, as Paul writes beautifully in Romans. This is what he means then when he says that only through Christ is the veil taken away. If it's not taken away, we have the Jews as our example, that they continue to read Moses. They're very devoted to it, but like the Pharisees, they do not find Jesus Christ as the point of these scriptures. They do not find the Spirit of God or receive him in holy baptism. Therefore, they don't have the freedom of the forgiveness of sins. And thinking they're holding on to all the old traditions, maybe even whatever's left of the temple and its sacrifices and the synagogue service, and yet they don't have the glory. Indeed, their temple is empty. The Ark of the Covenant is no longer there. Jesus Christ is the true temple, as we've heard in other prophecies and in his own words. He's the one to whom we cling. He's the place where the glory of God is to be heard. That's what it means when the Father says, listen to him. What then can we say about the ministry of apostles, of preachers in the New Testament? It's a bold ministry. We preach the law boldly, not just to tell people what God expects and what is good and right. We do that as well. But we never let people come to the conclusion that the law doesn't accuse them also, that it doesn't show them their sin and disclose to them that they are in desperate need at all times of a savior, of a rescuer. And who is this rescuer? We also have no lack of boldness in saying that it is Jesus Christ and him alone. And we point to that. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, he speaks not only about the openness, this boldness, this willingness to speak both the hard truths and to cut off every other source of salvation except for Jesus Christ, the true gospel. But he also says that this affects the attitude of apostles, 
that they speak openly, that they're not tricking people into this religion or trying to set out an attractive proposition to kind of sell this gospel. But we commend ourselves openly in the sight of everyone's conscience, which I guess leads to the kind of Paul preempting the question, which is a very difficult one for us, then why doesn't everybody believe it? Well, if our gospel is veiled, that's a a new change of the analogy. If our gospel is veiled or seems veiled and dim, it's only to those who are perishing because there's no lack of light in our gospel. It's pointing us to Jesus Christ. It's pointing us to the very image of God, the very one who is the light of the world, the one who shines hope onto those who are terrified by God's presence. We said that from the outset, the presence of God is in the first place not a very happy thought because a sinner knows this Lord expects perfection. This Lord is perfect. What hope do I have? Therefore, the gospel that says, actually, the Lord himself, who you write, can't be in the presence of sinners, He has taken this on himself in Christ Jesus to make a way, to meet us, to forgive us, to pardon us, to declare us righteous and bring us into his own presence graciously, not out of judgment. So of this, the apostles don't have to trump anything up. They don't have to make themselves bigger or better. They can be open and honest because they're the vessels of this message. They are more like Moses who reflects. They are not the true light themselves, but it's Jesus Christ who's this light. Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate, is our guest. We're looking forward to the transfiguration, according to the three-year lectionary. We will get into the gradual verse and the gospel reading, that transfiguration account in Mark chapter 9 next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Expert guests. Expansive topics. Extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. The evangelist St. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah when he writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. And at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Leland, Michigan, on the shores of Lake Michigan, you will receive Jesus and his eternal gifts in word and sacrament during our Sunday morning divine service at 9.30 a.m. 
Find out more on our website at emmanuelleland.com. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. CUChicago.edu. If you want to go deeper in your study of Scripture, in particular the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah addresses the nations promising both judgment and comfort, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is for you. It's the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. You can find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, one 800 Three two five thirty forty, and ask for the issues, etc. Book of the month for February: the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters thirteen through twenty-seven. We're looking forward to the Transfiguration of our Lord. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. What are the gradual and verse for the Transfiguration? The gradual is the same one we've been hearing. And here today, it doesn't maybe apply quite as well as other days, but I'll read it. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering into his courts. Well, certainly his glory is on display for us. But of all the years, I think this year, this gradual is unfortunately a little bit at odds, both with the psalm that we've heard and with our gospel, because the whole topic of conversation is not today about our offerings, but is focused on his offering, both who our Lord is, that we should listen to him, and especially that by his sacrifice, he is going to recall us to his covenant. To it, we have the Alleluia verse from Psalm 45, verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Alleluia. Isaiah says of Jesus quite famously that the suffering servant of God, the Messiah, has no form or beauty that we should consider him or think about him. And when Isaiah wrote that, he was writing about his humiliation, that the Lord was pleased to crush him for our iniquities. Well, today we have a preview of Jesus' glorification before he undergoes that suffering of his passion and his death. Thus, we do get to see his beauty today. But it's marvelous that it is grace that is poured on his lips. Our attention is directed not so much to the face and the beauty of God, but to his words. This is what the Father's voice says, Listen to him, not even just look at him. Certainly we have the passage to the Hebrews, come let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But here especially we fix our eyes on him by listening to his gracious words. 
if we are looking for rescue from this problem that even being in the presence of God is terrifying, we will find it in Jesus Christ who gives what is undeserved to us, who justifies the ungodly, who bears the sins of the world as atoning sacrifice, and who is risen from the dead to welcome us into his presence. Therefore, our attention is directed to Jesus, and we should listen to the grace that pours from his lips in his gospel. That brings us to the gospel reading for this coming Sunday, the account of the Transfiguration according to Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw no one with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This happened after six days. Six days after what? After Peter's confession and six days also after the statement, some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, that's very interesting. Certainly, this is an event where we see the kingdom of God coming, where we see lots of power. I guess Peter, James, and John are the ones who get to see it before they taste death. But honestly, the after seems a little incomplete. And this is the point that Jesus makes at the end when he bids them not to talk about this event until something more important happens. So the Jesus only is absolutely the real kingdom and the power. That's the power of the gospel. See how even the Father, though he appears with all of the fearsomeness and the glory of Sinai and the old covenant, the law of God, is directing us to something different. He's directing us to the gospel in Jesus Christ and what he will do. Thus, the after is even not this, but the kingdom and its power comes when Jesus suffers, dies, and rises. That's when his power is unleashed, so to speak. And it's not going to be a terrifying power so much as it's going to be a comforting and redeeming power. It's going to be the power of his pardon. And that is what's going to be different about the gospel is and why we need to see the law first with unveiled face, that we would know there's no hope of salvation by our works, but that there is grace, undeserved kindness from Jesus Christ that pours out in the forgiveness of sins. And in this, then, we have the light and the hope of salvation. So we're directed to the voice, uh, by the voice of the Father, to the message of Jesus Christ, to listen to him. And that's a perfect introduction, then, to the whole season of Lent that lies before us. Sean, what are your thoughts on the hymn of the day that we've been hearing, A Wondrous Type of Vision Fair? The hymn of the day is 
a perfect summary, as many of the great feasts of the church are, of what happens in the gospel reading. We see in particular that it calls to us to have our faithful hearts raised on high, that is, that we would be elevated by beholding this feast, that we would have joy and that we would not lose heart. This is especially helpful as we enter into the Lent season. And with it, I might just point back to one other hymn that we sang earlier in Epiphany, and that's, O morning star, how fair and bright you shine with God's truth and light. Just as we began with this, I think it's a great way to end the season of Epiphany too. that this great hymn that speaks about the Father's love that is shown to us in Christ, manifest, present with us throughout all of earth's deep sadness and perplexity, that we would uh, not only be confident for whatever we face here, knowing that we're listening to him, but also to have that hope that Paul talks about that will embolden us for whatever we face, that soon, amen, we will say, come Lord Jesus again, and we will have his day of his returning, when it will no longer be down the mountain and into the sorrow with this tension of the law and the gospel, but it will in fact be nothing but glory in his presence forever. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thanks. You're welcome.